This is Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Wir müssen selber für unsere Zukunft kämpfen als Europäer. We have to fight for our own future ourselves. That was German Chancellor Angela Merkel's stark warning about the future of Europe delivered last Sunday at a campaign stop in a Bavarian beer hall. It came just days after a visit to Europe by US President Donald Trump. Later, we'll look at what those words mean for the EU and its relationship with traditional allies, including the United States. But first, to the UK, where campaigning in the general election was suspended following last week's terrorist bombing in Manchester. This week, the campaign is back on. Good evening, and welcome to May versus Corbyn Live, the battle for number 10. Last night, Prime Minister Theresa May and Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn set out their stalls on a programme broadcast simultaneously by Sky News and Channel 4. They faced questions from a live studio audience and a grilling by presenter Jeremy Paxman, but they did not appear on screen together. I'm joined in studio by our London editor, Dennis Staunton. Dennis, who came out on top last night? Well, Jeremy Corbyn performed better than Theresa May. Uh, it's partly to do with expectations that at the beginning of this campaign, Jeremy Corbyn was written off as something of a loser. And uh, the expectation was that the more people got to know him, the less they would want to know him. In fact, the opposite has happened. And he's uh, a seasoned campaigner. He's somebody who enjoys campaigning. He's very comfortable in his own skin. So uh, in the debate, and particularly in the interaction with the audience, he seemed very uh, much at ease, very agreeable. And even when he was was facing hostile questions, he handled them very calmly. But this manifesto you fundamentally... You persuade the cabinet, can I, can the I, shadow can cabinet, can I to ex- No. Oh, oh, come on. Couldn't, couldn't come on, give persuade the shadow cabinet... Theresa May got more rattled, and what was really unusual uh, in Theresa May's performance, both uh, in the interaction with the audience and then when Jeremy Paxman was interviewing her, was the way in which the audience reacted, and they uh, jeered. A number of times they were laughing at her. And uh, she is somebody who's quite an awkward person. And when everybody thought Theresa May was great, her awkwardness, they thought, was great as well. But, uh, but in the course of the campaign, this figure who was the centerpiece of the conservative campaign, strong and stable leadership, Theresa May in huge letters, conservative party in tiny letters and all the, the posters and all the, the material. Uh, during the course of the campaign, she's a much diminished figure. And, uh, and, and that, I think, was apparent in the debate last night. And did she have any particularly bad moments, you think? I, sh- I think she had a couple. One was, uh, you know, and usually it was to do with when Jeremy Paxman, who was actually better and more effective when he was interviewing her, I thought, than when he was interviewing uh, Corbyn. His strategy with Corbyn, I, d- I don't think, worked so well. Whereas with her, uh, he was, uh, from the beginning, he, uh, his, his line really was, you don't believe in anything you're doing. So he said, you know, you campaigned for Remain. Now you're, uh, you're saying you're pushing for Brexit. You don't believe in it, do you? And so, uh, you know, when he pressed her on, uh, on, on being something of uh, a blowhard, he said, you know, you, uh, you know, he mentioned all her U-turns, policy U-turns, and a whole succession of them, including the business of whether to call an early election. And then at one stage he said, uh, isn't it true that the European leaders are going to think this is a blowhard. She's a blowhard who collapses at the first sign of gunfire. Who just uh, crumbles at the first sound of gunfire. And uh, the audience applauded at that. And she looked extremely uncomfortable. And um, on the other hand, then, Corbyn, you you alluded to something there, but his opponents have 
both inside and outside the Labour Party have um, kind of branded him with this um, tag that he's not prime ministerial material and doesn't look prime ministerial. Would you say he did? He looked very confident last night and very relaxed. Would you yeah. say go so far as to say he looked prime ministerial? No, he didn't actually particularly at all. But he looked pleasant and agreeable. And so, uh, and the thing is, I mean, I, I think you know we should get. Uh, ourselves into some sort of perspective here. Although uh, the Conservatives have been slipping in the polls a little and the, and the Labour Party have been doing much better in the polls than at the beginning, uh, still no poll is suggesting that Labour is going to win. And so if you look at the latest polls, they, the, the Conservative lead is somewhere between either 6%, uh, which is a kind of a modest majority, or 14%, which is probably a very big majority. And if you look at it in terms of seats, in 2015, the Conservatives won 99 more seats than Labour. So for Labour to be the biggest party, the Conservatives would have to lose about 50 seats to Labour. Nobody in the United Kingdom thinks that's going to happen. So I think that what we're talking about is not the idea, really, of Jeremy Corbyn becoming Prime Minister. Well, we're talking about two things. One is that Theresa May will come back, not with the landslide that uh, many of her supporters expected, but with a much more modest majority. And that at the same time, Jeremy Corbyn does well enough for Labour, perhaps getting over 200 seats, for him to be able to say, actually, you know, there's no reason for me to go, I can stay on. Yes, because he has made it um, clear from the very beginning that he has no intention of stepping down, regardless of the result. And initially, at the early stages of the campaign, that seemed fanciful, that idea. But it looks far less fanciful now, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think if you look at sort of two measures, one is uh, the share of the vote. Ed Miliband got about 34% of the vote. There's a very good chance that Jeremy Corbyn will come out with a, a slightly better share of the vote than that. Some polls are putting Labour on 38%. More of them are putting it around 35%. Uh, Labour at the moment is 239 seats or something like that. And if it came back with more than 200 and a bigger share of the vote than Ed Miliband, I think then certainly Corbyn would feel vindicated. I think the other argument that the Corbynites have, which is a, which is a valid one, is that uh, what Corbyn's critics say is that the reason people are flocking to the Labour Party is they like the manifesto. They don't like you, Jeremy. They like the manifesto. But he can actually quite uh, truthfully say... Without me, you wouldn't have a manifesto like that. None of you would have had a manifesto which said we're going to renationalize railways and uh, all of this stuff. So we could end up in a kind of ironic situation, could we, where uh, Theresa May duly wins the election, but with her own standing somewhat diminished, Corbyn loses the election and with his standing enhanced. I think that's a very good way of putting it. And I think that's uh, that seems to be where we're heading now. Uh, you know, Again, we don't know. And of course, the other imponderable is if you look at who's voting, and this is where the pollsters are terribly anxious. They're as anxious as the politicians, I think, as we head into the last uh, week or so of the campaign, because they keep doing all these changes to their models. But one of the, the facts about uh, opinion is that if you look at younger voters, those under 25, uh, they are backing Labour by uh, sort of 63% to 20-something percent. Mm -hmm. Huge margins. Traditionally, young people don't vote. But traditionally, lots of things don't happen. Traditionally, Donald Trump doesn't become president of the United States. Traditionally, Britain doesn't leave the European Union. So we just don't know. Maybe those people will vote. And that could then boost the Labour uh, tally even more. Now, notwithstanding what you said about the, the gaps still being so wide that we're not realistically talking about a Labour vic victory here, the, the fall in the polls still has been very significant for the Conservatives and their lead. I mean, the reduction yeah. in their lead where it was maybe 20, 21 points yeah. at the start. What has gone awry for them in the campaign? Is it all about this one issue, the social care U-turn that Theresa May did? 
or has it been other factors as well? Do you think? I think it's some of that. I think I think also you should note that at the very beginning of the campaign, there was a surge in support for the Conservatives. So the Conservatives had always had a pretty decent lead over Labour for some months. And then when the campaign started, that lead shot up because UKIP collapsed and UKIP voters flocked straight to Theresa May. And some uh, Labour voters who had backed Brexit, they also went towards Theresa May. So then what happened, I think, was that uh, it was all going very well for her and they put her at the centre of the campaign. It was very presidential. And she said, this is about Brexit. But really, they were saying this is a choice between me and Jeremy Corbyn. Look at him. You wouldn't ever want him uh, over there negotiating in Brussels on your behalf. Look at me. I'm strong and stable. Then she had uh, the wobble over her manifesto. And uh, so uh, she U-turned on this business of how you pay for social care if you're old. And the policy itself was very unpopular. It basically said, uh, you know, we might take your house when you die. And for conservative voters who liked having their house and passing it on to their children, that was like really, uh, you know, pretty hardcore. But I think then what happened was that uh, people looked at the Labour manifesto and there were lots of rather nice things in there, like saying free tuition fees for third level education. Uh, you know, uh, we're going to uh, protect you at work. Uh, we're going to do more. You know, generally, you're going to get rather a lot of nicer things. And actually, the manifesto was costed. They said it was going to be paid for by people who earn more than 80,000 a year would pay more tax and corporations, uh, companies would pay more tax. The Conservative manifesto wasn't costed. And the other thing was that once uh, the idea of Theresa May as a strong and stable leader was gone, people looked at the manifesto and there was nothing very very nice in there because they were feeling so confident of victory. They thought they could make all these very brave decisions, like, for example, saying we might take your house, uh, you know, when you get older, when you die, like saying the winter fuel allowance that all old age pensioners now we're going to get now, we're going to mean test that. And they also said um, free school meals. At the moment, it's a, it's a free hot cooked lunch in schools, that that's actually going to not be lunch anymore, but it's going to be a cold breakfast, a few flakes of cereal with some cold milk on top of it. And that's your lot. And you better eat it all because you'd be hungry at lunchtime otherwise. And so, so the thing is, there was nothing really very attractive that they were offering. So once the, you know, the magic of Theresa May started to crumble, a lot of other things started to crumble too. And what about the stage managing of her campaign? It was, it was, it's been very stage managed from the beginning and that her audiences were, you know, they, it looked like a, she attended, I think it started in Leeds with a public event, but they were all Conservative Party, handpicked supporters. She relies on the same terminology all of the time, going back to the same phrase. And, and, and also coming back to last night, her refusal to debate Jeremy Corbyn. Do you think over time, has that also kind of chipped away at her credibility a little bit or does that kind of stuff matter very much? No, I think it does. I mean, I think it is also just one of those classic things that if you're ahead and you know sporting uh, metaphors better than I do, but this idea that uh, that you know, somehow you're ahead and you don't want to make any mistakes... Uh, and that all works fine until suddenly something happens and you're not ahead anymore and you haven't actually built up whatever it is that you should have been doing. And so I think that, that, that that's part of the problem. That suddenly now, uh, you know, she doesn't probably, she's not at much risk of losing the election. But she has, is at quite a big risk of coming back with a very modest majority. Uh, there's even a possibility of a hung parliament. Uh, and so uh, now suddenly with 10 days to go, They've got to scrap all of this caution, which seemed like a great idea if you had a lead of 24 points. And they now have to think of something else to do. But there isn't that much else they can do. Mm. And you mentioned today, you're, you're right today, today that she'll be um, attempting to put Brexit back centre stage because I think that's when 
yeah. even though she was a Remainer. She seems to be, a, <laughs> she's, Brexit is an area where she thinks, you know, I think she's winning. Do you think she'll succeed in doing that? Well, again, I think she's got a bit of a problem there because uh, one of the things, you know, she's, she said this is about Brexit, but she wouldn't actually say anything much about Brexit. You know, she wouldn't say, what exactly is the deal I'm going to go? What am I going to rule out doing? She didn't put much flesh on the bones of her negotiating position. And that's for very good reasons that actually once she gets into the negotiations, she will have to compromise somehow. And so she oughtn't to box herself in. But the problem is that if you uh, are talking about Brexit, there are only really two things she can say. One is, I'll do all these things and insist on them. Uh, will Jeremy Corbyn do the same? And she's reluctant to do too much of that. And the other is to say, actually, it's a choice between me and Jeremy Corbyn, which gets us back to where we were before, which is that they may decide that they don't think much of him, but they may also decide, some of these waverers, that they think even less of her. Yes. And just briefly to mention the Scottish National Party, because they launched their manifesto today. It seems incredibly late in the campaign, although it was postponed um, because of the Manchester attack. Um they won, I think, 56 out of 59 seats in Scotland last time out. Are they expected just simply to kind of re- a repeat of that performance? Or? No, I think that they, uh, you know, that, that was an extraordinarily good result, 56 out of 59. And I think if they were to win the same number again, it would be astonishing. Uh, the Conservatives uh, under Ruth Davidson in, uh, in Scotland have been doing very well. They've consolidated, in a way, the pro-union, anti-Scottish independence vote behind them as Labour has continued to collapse in Scotland. So there's a good chance that uh, the Conservatives could pick up uh, a few seats. The Liberal Democrats might win back uh, one of the seats they lost last time. Labour doesn't seem to have much of a chance. So uh, the SNP could come back with fewer seats than they have now, but still with the overwhelming majority of the seats in Scotland. And um, so with nine, ten days left in the campaign, finally, how do you see it playing out over the next uh, week? I think that uh, we're going to see what we've been seeing in the last few days, that Labour uh, is feeling more confident than it has before. And in a way, Labour hasn't been playing to win until now. Uh, some of them might even allow themselves the, you know, the, the fantasy that they might. I think it's probably still unlikely that they will succeed. I think that the Conservative Party has to be rattled. The Conservative campaign uh, has to feel that they really have miscalculated, that maybe they piled too much on to, to Theresa May and that she simply was not able to bear that burden as a politician who wasn't that well known, not really that experienced outside the Home Office, and that she was just an unlikely kind of heroine and, uh, and front of house figure. Uh, and then you have on Friday another uh, another moment where both Jeremy Corbyn and uh, Theresa May, once again separately but immediately after one another, face an audience in question time. And that could be another defining moment in this campaign. Thanks, Dennis. Now we return to the Bavarian Beer Hall. And the Zeiten, in denen wir uns auf andere völlig verlassen konnten, Angela Merkel's remarks, in which she suggested Europeans could no longer fully rely on others and must now take their destiny in their own hands, are being viewed as a potentially historic turning point in EU-US relations. For more on this, I'm joined by our Europe editor, Paddy Smith. Paddy, before I ask you about this story, our regular listeners will have noticed that you're not hosting uh, the podcast these days. So can you tell them where have you gone? Well, I've gone back to my old stomping ground I, from Dublin to, to Brussels as correspondent for the Irish Times uh, on Brexit and all things European. Like uh, Karl Marx, who used to sit in the square of the Grand Place 
uh, contemplating the collapse of Europe all around him, I will be doing so there uh, for the next three years. So it's at an incredibly interesting time in terms of uh, the future direction of the EU and, and of Europe in general looking uh, very uncertain. Um, and that speech by Angela Merkel to which we referred, it was an uncharacteristically forthright address by the German Chancellor. Why do you think she chose to make it at this particular time? Well, I think there were two aspects to it. One uh, was a domestic uh, election. That sort of talk goes very down very well with her, her voters. Uh, but it was also a reflection of the exasperation felt by 27 member states of the European Union at, at Donald Trump's behaviour, at his uh, refusal to accept really key concerns uh, of his most important allies. I mean, this, this, the man had... Uh, traveled to Saudi Arabia, where he'd been uh, extremely politely and enthusiastically greeted, uh, and he didn't have uh, pick any arguments with them. And then he came back to Europe, uh, the old allies in Europe, and he fell out on on a number of very important issues with them. One particular um, respected commentator, Gideon Rachman in the Financial Times, he, he wrote today that Merkel's speech was a blunder in his view because it throws into doubt the um, American-European alliance that has kept the peace in Europe for 70 years. Would you agree with that assessment? No, not in the slightest. I, I, I think it, it, was, uh, it, was, it was welcome and profoundly important because I think it reflects a, a new political reality now. Uh, and Europe looking to the future, it knows that it, it will have to rely on its own resources. Uh, it can't rely on, on America. And there's a very interesting contrast between the way Merkel... Uh, has dealt with Trump and the way, for example, British leaders traditionally uh, deal with Trump. People like May and, and, and Tony Blair before her, but other, other British prime ministers have tended almost to grovel in front of the Americans and to say anything you want, sir, uh, you know, I, I'll jump higher and higher. And uh, Merkel is, is saying, actually, you know, we are uh, an independent power in our own right, Europe and Germany. And we we don't have to uh, be beholden con- constantly to, to the Americans. Isn't there a danger, though, of some overreaction to Trump? I mean, he's in uh, office for just four months. Um, he clearly either doesn't understand or doesn't uh, appreciate or respect the importance of this transatlantic alliance. But is, is there not a danger? And I suppose this is part of Gideon Ragman's argument that Merkel is to some extent falling into the, the trap of, of playing Trump's own game and then, uh, you know, making this, this rift a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't think so. I, I think you've got to understand that on the two issues that he most disappointed the Europeans on, they were issues of fundamental importance. And you couldn't just turn a blind eye and say, ah, it'd be all right in the night. He refused to endorse the Paris Accord. Is is reputed this week uh, to be deciding whether or not to uh, repudiate it. Uh, and this is a cornerstone of the entire Western world, indeed the world, because the Chinese are very much on board uh, attitude to, to dealing with, with uh, climate change. Trump is, is working, walking away from it. Uh, he also refused to uh, abide by a commitment which successive American presidents have made uh, which is Article 5 of the NATO Treaty, which promises to come to the defense of any member state uh, which, which comes under attack. Now, this is, this is not an academic uh, commitment. This is something that has kept the peace, arguably, in Europe since the Second World War. And uh, America is pulling a foundation stone of the NATO uh, alliance. And it, it's not, it, 
he's making people, for example, in the, in the, the Baltic states, extremely nervous as they see Putin flexing his muscles. They see uh, in, in Turkey, uh, in, sorry, in, in Ukraine, uh, the Russians behaving as if it's, it's their territory. Uh, I mean, the, so it's not something you can ignore. And I think she's, she's absolutely right. And it's, the future of Europe is, uh, depends on Europe standing up for itself. Now, of course, um, she referred not only to the US in her speech, she also referred to the, the UK and she said, of course, we need to have friendly relations with the UK and with Russia. Now, before I come to the UK issue specifically, do you, do you think she really intended to lump Britain and the US in with Russia as the kind of potential threats to the future stability of the EU? I think she regards them all as problems, um, as, yes, uh, in the first two, in the, in the Americans and the, the British as allies, but problematic allies who are not to be relied on. And, uh, and therefore, it's not entirely uh, wrong to lump them in with Russia. That Russia was the other thing that Trump failed uh, to uh, support his European allies on. They, they want to increase sanctions on Russia. Uh, Trump is saying, I'm not so sure, I don't think so. And from what we can gather, is is cozying up to the Russians. Um, okay, now the reference to the UK, of course, was an indirect reference to, to Brexit. Um, negotiations on the terms of Britain's departure from the, the EU begin on, on June the 19th. How difficult, Paddy, do you think those negotiations are going to be? I think they're going to be extremely difficult. I, I think what, the first thing I would say is that we've entered a, a new phase. Uh, I think we've gone beyond the, 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 the rhetorical um, banging of, of, of drums and... and uh, ritual denunciations of each other, and we're now into the serious business of negotiations. Uh, we're, going to, we're beginning to see people setting out their positions. The Commission uh, this week has published two documents, uh, one on citizens' rights and the other on, on the financial package. Neither of them terribly specific, uh, but they're beginning to try to draw out uh, the British position. Uh, the, the problem is uh, everybody here... Is, is bewildered by the fact that they don't seem to know what the British actually want. It's very difficult to, to formulate your own response when you don't know uh, what the British bottom line is. And uh, that we'll have to wait until after the election to see. Um, and um, we had Dennis Staunton, our colleague on earlier, talking about the election and the fact that Theresa May is hoping to put Brexit back centre stage on the campaign from today. She, she was again falling back today on her mantra that uh, no deal is better than a bad deal. Do, do people in Brussels really believe that, that she would prefer to walk away with no deal? Uh, they were asked the question yesterday at the Commission uh, briefing, and the response is the standard Commission response, that the Commission w- wants to get a deal and will get a deal and won't be drawn any, any further on, on the issue. I, I think, uh, realistically, uh, it is probably true to say that the British do want a deal of some kind, because... No deal is is um, is really, could be really horrendous from a British trade uh, perspective. Tariffs are going up all over the place, and uh, it would be particularly bad, of course, for Ireland because uh, areas like agricultural exports to to Britain would be would be very badly hit if if tariff barriers uh, were, were were thrown up between the two countries. So uh, I think that that's part of the rhetorical game. 
at the moment, nobody really believes that that is, that is going to be the outcome. Okay. And to what extent, Paddy, do you expect Brexit to dominate the agenda there for the next couple of years? What I'm wondering is some of those larger issues that Angela Merkel raised about uh, EU relations, you know, with the US and with Russia and so on. Is all of that going to have to take a backseat now while this Brexit sort of mountain is faced by everybody for the next two years? Or would there be room for the EU to, to kind of carve out a position for itself in the wider world and not just be focused on this one issue? I, th- I think uh, one of the things that's most striking about arriving here to report on, on uh, the whole Brexit debate is that uh, we are particularly, we the Irish, are particularly obsessed by Brexit. The British are obsessed also, to a lesser extent, strangely, and everybody else is interested but not obsessed. Uh, there are other very big issues on, on, on the agenda. There's a meeting, for example, of Justice and Home Affairs ministers next week, which is going to talk again about the, uh, uh, how to deal with migrants. Uh, there is a publication today by the Commission of, of its own budget for next year with uh, substantial increases in spending on, on uh, job creation uh, and, and the like. So business as usual continues, and, and Brexit will certainly be uh, pushing its way into the, 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 the main stage, onto the main stage, but it's, it's not the only issue here. OK, thanks for that, Paddy, and uh, good luck with the new role, the old new role. Thank you. That's it for this week. For more on these stories, go to irishtimes.com. Until next week, goodbye, and thanks very much for listening.